On this episode of Scammer Stories, a man called the original Internet Godfather. He wasn't just a single scammer. He built a network around the world. His story is so elaborate with so many twists and turns that it's hard to believe. It begins with a little boy with an abusive mother. It was a violent environment most of the time and you never really knew what was going on or what was going to go on. I remember one time we were asleep and uh, we hear gunshots in the house. Brett Johnson is a name you'll want to remember. His story is so fascinating that it's destined for the big screen. He turned over to the other side eventually after being busted by the Secret Service and the FBI, but it took a while. I was stealing uh, about $160,000 a week. Later, Brett has some really insightful opinions on romance scams and how people become victims. First, we start at the beginning of his life as a little boy growing up very close to his sister, Denise. But I'm from Eastern Kentucky. Mom was uh, was very abusive. And when I say that, I mean, she could be physical, and she was, but it was more the emotional, the mental, verbal. When she was with my dad, she'd bring that home in front of him. I mean, home in front of him. The man, he didn't have a violent bone in his body. He would just sit there and cry and beg her not to do it, and she'd do it anyway. And finally, she leaves him. I was 10, my sister 9. I get the, I guess, worst parts from my mom and my dad. My mom and that side of the family, I get the criminal mindset. From my dad, I get that fear of being abandoned of, you know, the people that I love leaving. If we were lucky, mom would take us with her. And... We'd either wait out in the car while she went inside with men, or sometimes we'd wait in the living room and she'd uh, turn to the bedroom. Most of the time, she just left us at home while she went out and partied. And when she partied, she partied for days. So (laughs) this one time where I started my crimes, uh, mom had been gone for a few days. And Denise comes in. She's got this pack of pork chops. And I asked her, I was like, where'd you get that? She was like, I stole them. And I'm like, huh, show me how you did that. She takes me back over to A&P. And she shows me how she boosts food. And I'm like, hey, that's a good idea. Let's do that. So we started stealing food and we were stuffing the stuff down our pants. You know, we were 10 and 9. Nobody was noticing us. But we wanted to have some sandwiches. Well, you can't stuff a loaf of bread down your pants. So across the way was Kmart. I went over there and I stole a hoodie, a zip-up hoodie, so that we could put loaves of bread in the sleeves of that hoodie. And that's where we started stealing clothes. And then, you know, once we figured out we could steal clothes, well, we'd steal games and jewelry and toys and music and mom comes home sees the stuff we've been stealing asks where it came from and of course i'm the guy who tried to lie about it and tell her we found it denise she stands up in front of my mom and says we stole it and my mom looks at my sister and she's like well show me how you're doing that kind of stuff and my mom joins us and when i say join us what i actually mean is my mom ran me and my sister as little shoplifters she goes and gets her mom as well runs us as these little shoplifters and you know either to distract what her and her mom are stealing or to have us steal stuff because you know little kids aren't going to get that much trouble and we used to take these these road trips all the time They'd go to JCPenney's and steal jewelry and clothes and stuff like that. I'd go to the bookstore and steal books. And that ended. What happened was is uh, they got caught. We went to the Fort Henry Thomas Mall in uh, Kingsport, Tennessee. We were supposed to meet back at a uh, at the car at like 1 o'clock. Well, I get back to the car, and I've got a load of books and everything, and no one's there. So I wait around 20 or 30 minutes. And I'm like, well, they got to be in JCPenney. I don't know what's going on. Go to walk in JCPenney, and there are two security guards standing outside. And I literally hear, as I'm walking in, I hear my name over top one of the walkie-talkies. 
these, you know, Brett Johnson kind of stuff. I'm like, Brett Johnson. They're like, yeah. And I'm like, I'm Brett Johnson. And they look at me, they're like, come with us. So I go with them and they take me to the security room. And there's my mother and my grandmother huddled together in a corner, crying their eyes out, screaming how they didn't do it, anything else they didn't mean to. It was a mistake, but they've never done it before, all that bullshit. My sister's sitting in the opposite corner, just mad. I mean, she's staring holes through them like she could kill them right there. That's how they got caught. Um, so that ended the shoplifting career of, of those three. I kept going with that, of course. Denise never commits another crime after that. But as I got older, I kept on going. I got more involved with the types of scams and fraud that my mother and that side of the family committed from charity fraud, documents, stealing cars, faking accidents, uh, insurance fraud. I mean, illegal coal mining. Finally, I branched off on my own. Um, when I was 24, I faked a car accident to get the money to get married and move from uh, Hazard, Kentucky to Lexington, Kentucky to go to University of Kentucky. And I was going there for literature and uh, theater acting. A lot of the reason I break the law is money so I could kind of shower the ones that I love with material crap. So I got married. I told my wife, I was like, ah, you don't worry about working. I'll do the job. I've got a job already. I'll do that. Don't worry about cooking and cleaning. I got you. So here I am, 18 hours of classes, 40-hour work week, doing all the cooking and cleaning and everything else. And yeah, I can't do all that. Didn't really know what I was going to do. And the first thing I started is I start some telemarketing. So I, I start working at J. Peterman Company. And I was working for J. Peterman at the same time the Titanic movie was out. Well, J. Peterman was the sole seller of all Titanic memorabilia. The dishes that were on the ship in the movie, the life vest, everything else. Jay Peterman was the sole provider of that. And the movie was so big, everyone was wanting a piece of the movie. So you could buy, like, say, a life jacket from Jay Peterman for $90, and you could resell it on eBay for $360. Working customer service, I had access to the order system. I start canceling other people's orders, putting orders in my name, and start selling stuff on eBay. Well, one morning before work, I get a knock at the door, and it's the Fayette County Sheriff's Office. So I'm like, what can I do for you? He's like, you're selling Titanic memorabilia on eBay. I was like, yeah. And he's like, uh, what are you selling? I was like, well, I'm selling dishes and life, life vests and everything else. He's like, well, look, he said, we got a call from someone that has been on one of your items, and he doesn't think you've got the real item. No one can get this merchandise. And I was like, well, I can get it. And the detective pops up, and he's like, how are you getting the merchandise? And I'm like, well... I work at J. Peterman, and I know all the orders that are coming in, and I can just go in and buy the merchandise before anybody else is able to buy it. He's like, we are wasting our time here. So they leave. Well, I go into, into work that afternoon, and Audrey Peterman, J. Peterman's wife, she calls me into the office. The sheriff's office had told them that I was selling their product on eBay. So they fired me that day. From there, I go to work at the uh, Shriners uh, Hospital selling Shriners Circus tickets. And that's where I started with charity fraud, not uh, with the tickets themselves. But uh, once that circus was over, we transitioned over into um, Kiwanis Club, uh, providing food for food banks. And you'd solicit donations. I ended up stealing the phone list of the Kiwanis Club, setting up my own Kiwanis Club charity and then defrauding that. Got caught doing that, spent three months in a county jail. When I got out of jail on that, my father-in-law had purchased a Packard Bell desktop. I rounded up enough money to buy a CD-ROM copier and started to sell pirated software as the real thing. Ended up making some contacts with um, pirated software coming out of Hong Kong that were selling on uh, 
classified as 2000 as well. So I started to sell actual pressed copies of pirated software, pirated video games. The pirated video games turned into installing mod chips so that you could play the pirated video games on the systems, both Sega Saturn and PlayStation 1. That led into getting mod chips so that I could install those into cable television boxes so you could watch pay-per-view and have all the channels on on cable TV, which finally led into programming satellite DSS cards. So the uh, 18-inch RCA and Dish Network systems, they have a card in there. You can program the card. I started doing that. You go down to Best Buy, you buy a system for $100, you take it out in the parking lot, open the system, pull the card out, throw the system away, program the card, ship it to Canada, $500 a pop. I started doing that, making a lot of money, had so many orders I couldn't fill all the orders. Thought to myself, you know, why do I need to fill any of them? They're in Canada. I'm down here. So I didn't fill any of the orders, stole even more money. At that point, I was making about $4,000 a week. I was in, in college and quickly figuring out that, you know, maybe I don't need to worry about college so much. Got worried about how much money was coming in, started worrying about money laundering. Figured the best thing that I could do is get a fake ID, open up a bank account under the fake ID launder the money out through that. Had no idea where to get a fake driver's license. Got online, started looking around, thought I found a guy, sent him $200, sent him my picture, and he rips me off. And I got pissed. I mean, I got really pissed. Brett figured if he was going to be a cyber criminal, he needed an organized network he could trust. So he set up two online groups. And the sites that I set up and, and ran were Counterfeit Library and Shadow Crew. What uh, Counterfeit Library Shadow Crew did is they provided a trust mechanism so criminals could engage with each other. If you look at how cybercrime operates, there are three necessities to successful cybercrime, and that's gathering data, committing the crime, and then cashing out. Basically, the tools or services or product that a criminal will need to engage in whatever type of crime that he needs to. What you see, though, the problem with, with that, with those three necessities, is that a single criminal is not good in all three areas. He's good in one area. Very rarely can a cyber criminal do all three. And that's why you have the, the forums, the marketplaces, the dark web and service web groups. They allow that one specific criminal to network with other criminals who are good in areas where he or she is not. So what Shadow Crew did is they, it gave a trust mechanism. It gave a large communication channel that criminals could use, that they could learn with. There were vouchers in place. There were review systems in place. There were escrow systems set up. The problem with online crime is you're dealing with other criminals and you never know the real identity of that criminal. You just know a screen name. So there has to be enough trust mechanisms in place that you can trust the other person on the end of the line. The interesting thing is, is there's not really that much difference in the way trust works in a criminal environment compared to a legitimate environment. People have to be able to trust the platform, Amazon, eBay, uh, whatever platform they're buying from online. Uh, same thing with the criminal network. You still have to be able to trust whoever you're dealing with or you won't deal with them. Uh, Shadow Crew solved that for criminal environments. There was still one more giant piece of the puzzle. Carter Planet is then launched by a computer wizard in the Ukraine. Dmitry Golubov. He was 18, 19 years old. He was a spammer in the Ukraine. He sees the success that we were having with both Counterfeit Library and Shadow Crew. His idea was, he was like, you know, I wonder if people would actually buy 
stolen credit card data. He literally picks up the phone. He calls his buddies. They call their buddies. They have a physical conference in Odessa. 150 cyber criminals meet and they launch the idea for Carter Planet, which is the genesis of modern credit card theft as we see it today. Carter Planet ends up partnering with Shadow Crew. And the reason is it goes back to those three necessities of cybercrime, gathering data, committing crime, cashing out. The Ukrainians gathered data all day long. They could even commit the crime to a degree. What was impossible for the Ukrainians to do, though, was to cash out because there had been so much fraud on the Eastern Bloc of Europe. Every single card was shut down. Even if you were the legitimate card holder, you could not run cards through the Ukraine or that Eastern Bloc of Europe at that point. So they had to have someone help them cash out. And that became the only other game in town was Shadow Crew and Counterfeit Library. I was the head of both of those. Shadow Crew makes the front cover of Forbes, August of 2004. October 2004, the United States Secret Service arrested 33 people, six countries, six hours. I was the only guy publicly mentioned of escaping that roundup. The reason he escapes? After years of marriage to Susan, she figures out what he's doing and leaves. But Brett isn't good alone, not without a woman. So he goes to a strip club. And the series of events after that hides him from authorities for a while. I was married for nine years. During the entire nine years I was married to Susan, I lied to her all nine. She leaves and uh, I get depressed. I, I mean, when I say I get depressed, I get suicidal. I'm walking around the house in a stupor all day long, everything else. Brett was totally head over heels in love with a stripper. In my life, I'd never been to a strip club, and here I am, lonely and a little horny. Figure that's the best thing that I could do. So I walk into a strip club, and the first girl that I meet, the first stripper, is the one I fall in love with. They were making so much money that a red flag was raised with authorities. And they were so good that they could hack celebrity accounts. A member of ours, his name was Enhance, he worked at T-Mobile. Well, back in, I think it was 2003, 2004, there was a news article, and it made a lot of news on television, that Paris Hilton had her T-Mobile list compromised. That was our guy that did that. He not only did that, but he also intercepted text messages of the Secret Service investigating Shadow Crew. So I step away from Shadow Crew at the same time that our forum techie is arrested. So this guy named Albert Gonzalez, he's in New Jersey, broad daylight. He's got a backpack on his shoulder. He's got a stack of white plastic counterfeit cards. He's putting one card in ATM, pulling out cash. He does this at one ATM for over 40 minutes. Meanwhile, across the street, Two New Jersey cops are there, and they're like, hey, you know, what is this guy doing standing in an ATM for 40 damn minutes? So one of the cops gets up, goes over, walks up to Albert. Albert's wearing a wig. He's got a disguise on, everything else. Albert falls apart right there, flips, goes to work for the Secret Service. Shadow Crew's busted October 26, 2004. I get called February 8, 2005. Elizabeth didn't know what I was doing. So I got picked up. I was uh, running counterfeit cashier's checks one day to go, to go pick up a couple wedding bands. The FBI and Charleston, South Carolina Police Department, they arrested me, take me into uh, for interrogation. The FBI did. Within 45 minutes, the Secret Service takes over the investigation, sent me down in the interrogation room. They're like, well, we got your laptop. I'm like, yeah. They're like, you got anything on it? I'm like, yep. They're like, well, you're going to be charged for everything that's on it. And I'm like, yeah, I know. And then one of the agents looks at me and he's like, uh, can you do anything for us? My exact words were, you let me get back with Elizabeth and I'll do whatever you want me to do. He was arrested three weeks before he was supposed to marry Elizabeth. Agents let him sit in jail. So they let me sit there for three months to get a taste of what um, 
prison could be like. Bottomed me out after three months. And I tell her, I was like, hey, I'm out. She's like, I'll be there. So we're waiting out in the parking lot. Me and the Secret Service agent are. Elizabeth had a friend that owned a limousine company. So she pulls up in a damn limousine, pops the trunk, gets out, gets these two plastic storage containers out that have my clothes in them, drops them on the pavement of the uh, parking lot, comes over, hugs me, tells me, call me later, drives off. And here I am. I'm just crying like a baby. Secret Service agent, he looks over at me. He's like, is that your fiance? I'm like, yeah. He's like, uh, I am so sorry. And I'm like, yeah. Got $30 to my name at that point. Secret Service puts me up in the hotel for the night and gives me uh, money to eat. Later that night, he's back to committing crime. First, he tries to patch things up with Elizabeth. As soon as he leaves, I call Elizabeth, beg her to come over. She comes over and I start telling her this line of bullshit about how everything's going to be all right. I'm working for the government now. Everything's going to be just fine. Give me one more chance. And she's like, I'll give you one more chance. So as soon as she leaves, I take the $30 I've got left my name and walk to Walmart and buy a prepaid debit card so I can start back in tax fraud. For the next 10 months, I commit crime while working for the Secret Service from inside their offices. And that lasted for 10 months until they found out that I was screwing them over. They revoked my bond. He had also, by this point, broken up with Elizabeth. He had figured out that she didn't really love him. And I go off the deep end at that point and start drinking heavily, uh, dropping anywhere from four dollars to $6,000 a night at strip clubs, and get to the point where I don't care anymore. I go cross-country on a crime spree. I uh, figure I need to steal enough money to... Uh, make it down to Brazil. So I steal about $600,000 in the space of four months. Uh, the night before I was in Las Vegas, Nevada, had stolen 160K out of ATMs, wake up the next morning, signed on to cartersmarket.com, which was ran by, a, uh, I guess you'd call him a friend, a friend of mine, Max Butler. He's in the book Kingpin, written by Kevin Polson. I'm in that book as well. So I signed on to Carter's Market. And there's my name, most wanted beside of it. And I was so much an asshole. I mean, it scared me to death, but I was so much an asshole at that point that uh, I looked at that uh, for about 20 minutes and I was like, well, Brett Johnson, you've made the United States most wanted list. What now? And I said it out loud and I was like, I'm going to Disney World. So I loaded up the uh, Jeep that I had, drove from Las Vegas, Nevada to Orlando, Florida, rented a timeshare about six weeks. Secret Service, they came and got me, arrested me and sent me to prison. Of course, I escaped from prison after that. He was at a minimum security prison where he worked outside, so he was able to just walk away. In prison, I went through three prison riots, saw four uh, suicides, two murders. took about uh, two and a half years for me to get to the point where I understood that the only reason that I was in prison was my choices. It wasn't I justified my crimes. I said I did it because of family and wife, stripper girlfriend, all that. So it lasted about three weeks. Secret Service, they come and arrest me in Lexington, Kentucky, went back to prison, spent eight months in solitary confinement, then got shipped out to a real prison in Big Spring, Texas, where riots, murders, all this other stuff happened. I was met at the gate. That's one of the things I, I didn't understand about prison is that guards don't run prisons. Inmates run prisons, gangs specifically. Uh, you're met at the door by whatever race you are. And I was met at the door by the treasurer of the Aryan Brotherhood. As soon as I walk in, it's a converted Air Force compound. Uh, everyone sleeps in a barracks. A guy named Nick Sandifer, he looks at me. He's like, any, any more white guys come in? I'm like, yeah, three or four. He's like, what are you in here for? Computer crime. And he looks at me. And I, I didn't understand that when you say computer crime, it doesn't mean credit card theft, hacking, or whatever you want to call it. It means child pornography. And so uh, I mistakenly told the Aryans I was a pedophile. He goes and gets his big buddies to circle around. They're all asking me, what the hell? I'm trying to explain it, but the way it actually works 
they won't act on whether you're a pedophile or not unless they have evidence of that. And the guards are the ones who give the evidence up. So they were waiting for that to come from the guards. It never arrived because it wasn't a pedophile. But what came in before that was Wired Magazine hits the compound four weeks after I'm there. I'm in the magazine. And it's talking about the credit card theft, the hacking, the stolen money, all that. And then it says Brett Johnson, Secret Service informant. The warden gets wind of it, shuts down the entire compound, calls me in the office. He's like, did you give an interview to Wired Magazine? I'm like, yeah. He's like, why the hell did you do that? And I was like, it seemed like a good idea. And he's like, man, they will kill you here. And then he looks at me. He's like, do you feel safe here? And I was like, I knew what that meant. If you tell me you don't feel safe, they throw you back in solitary for eight months until they transfer you. I just got out of solitary. So I'm damn well not wanting to go back. And I'm like, yeah, I feel completely safe. And he's like, get back to your bunk. If anything happens, please let me know because they will kill you here. They do a locker search trying to get all the magazines off the compound. They can't can't. The next day I walk back into the unit. There's Nick Sandifer. He's laying on his bunk. He's got the magazine reading it. I'm like, oh shit. So I walk up to him. I'm like, hey, Nick, what are you doing? He's like, oh, just doing some reading. I was like, anything interesting? He's like, it's getting there. And I was like, um, are we going to have a problem? And he looks at me. He's like, did you snitch on anybody that's here right now? I was like, no, I did not. He's like, until someone gets here, you told on, we don't have a problem, but you need to do something for me. So the do something is Federal prison, everyone has to work. Doesn't matter what you do, you got to have a job. I got a job in education teaching a literature class. Every Aryan signs up for the literature class. A couple of guards used to eavesdrop as well, and that lit class was not a lit class. It was a fraud class where I taught anybody that wanted to know about how to commit fraud. I didn't have to join up with a gang. I didn't get my ass beaten, and I fell under the protection of the Aryans at that point. So I didn't, I wasn't harmed or anything until I finally transferred over to a uh, much nicer facility at Fort Worth, Texas. And I was able to, to not have to do anything like that. But I got out in 2011, had no taste of breaking the law whatsoever. I was under three years probation. I couldn't touch a computer. I had job offers from Deloitte, from no before fishing, from a couple of payment processors. Couldn't take that. Um, got to where I was trying to apply for fast food. Nope. That's a computer. He has a hard time in the job department, but he ended up talking his way into a lawn mowing crew and he finds a girlfriend. My wife now, Michelle, but she ended up finding me and I ended up moving in with her about two months later. Started working for him and the job was pushing a lawnmower. I pushed a lawnmower for 10 hours a day, five days a week, and the pay was $400 a week. But the job is seasonal and that means it ends. I didn't have any money coming in. Michelle was on one working. And I was like, I got to do something. I got to show her I'm worth it. So I figured the best thing that I could do, or at the least what I could do is I could bring food in the house. So I got online, got some stolen credit cards, and it started. It started with me ordering food. I got picked up. I got picked up on a food order. I had uh, some steaks from Diamond Ranch coming in. Went back uh, to prison for 10 months. And that's when I find out that uh, Michelle didn't need me for what I could give her. She just wanted me for me the entire time. I'd never had that with anybody in my life except my sister. So I did my 10 months, got out of prison. We got married shortly after that. I'm off probation now so I could touch a computer. So I signed on to LinkedIn and I reached out to this guy named Keith Malarski. He was the top cyber agent on the planet as far as I'm concerned. He was involved with uh, some of my arrests. And I sent him a note on LinkedIn. I was like, uh, you know, hey, I just want you to know I, I respect everything you did. I think you did a great job. By the way, I'd like to be legal. He responded to me in two hours, under two hours. And that's what led to his job as a speaker around the country today. Took me under his wing, gave me references, advice, and he does that to this day. Today, I podcast. I've got a couple of TV shows in the works, books coming out. Um, 
speak all over the planet, consult with top companies, consumer groups, people, everything else. Is there one crime that haunts you more than the others? I think the worst one for me, there was a um, single parent lady and she was on eBay. And I I wish I could tell you it happened uh, when I first started breaking the law, but it was right at the end days. So this lady had a a coin collection. It was silver back in the day, all U.S. currency, the coins used to be silver. So she had saved up like 70 pounds of silver coins and she was selling them to put a roof on the house for her and her kids. I ripped her off. I got her to send the the coin collection in and I sent a, a counterfeit cashier's check to her. Other crimes that haunt him are draining people's retirement and one guy who went to jail when he went to deposit one of his counterfeit checks. I asked Brett about my burning questions behind my mother's romance scam before she died. How could my intelligent mother fall for it? You have to understand first that from a victim-predator point of view, all right, and it's kind of important that you realize that's that's the relationship. When scammers look at people, you're either predator or prey. The scammer tends to be in predator mode, all right, so he's looking for prey. It starts out as a relationship of oppositions. You're on two separate sides. But an experienced scammer, it's all about getting that person that's on the opposite side that's in the opposition on your side. Okay, or making them believe they're on your side. As long as you're in opposition, it's much harder to get someone to send you money. So you need to get that person to where they believe that they're on your side. The thing about romance scams that is really despicable is you're dealing with a person, and it it doesn't even have to be romance. You're dealing with a person who just wants friendship or love or whatever you want to call it. And that is an extremely strong motivator. You look at at my past, what would I do for love? Well, I would end up on the United States most wanted list, all this other stuff. Okay. I would, I would spend a lifetime of crime trying to, uh, I guess, make up for the lack of love or the way that love was shown to me as a child. But that type of motivator is an extremely strong one. It's one that blinds people as well. So what you're dealing with is you're dealing with a person that is lonely. It's all about, you know, the parents, the kids grow grow up and they move away. The parents are there. They're alone. They don't really have anybody else. You know, just say hello to them. That person, they don't have anybody or they don't think they have anybody. Sure, they've got their kids. Their kids may visit them and everything else, but they've got their own life. All of a sudden, maybe they're wanting friendship. Maybe they're looking for love or romance, what have you. They sign up to a dating site. The dating site, the only thing that damn thing is, is a pool of potential victims. So if you're looking at, uh, say, sugar daddy sites, you've got the men that come in and they're wanting to have sex, whatever the hell you want to call that. They are potential victims of these other scammers out there, be them males that are pretending to be females or females that are females that are simply trying to milk the guy out of money by sending pictures or potentially meeting or what have you. Okay, but the more traditional dating sites, you've still got a pool of potential victims there. So you all of a sudden you've got these guys out there or maybe even girls out there that sit there and say, okay, let me find a mark. And the sad thing is that when we set up dating profiles, and I've been on dating sites, Match.com, eHarmony, Plenty of Fish. I met my wife on Plenty of Fish. When we build a profile, we put up the best pictures that we have. We talk about, you know, if we if we are successful, we talk about our success. We look for somebody that is as successful. The algorithms on the dating sites are built so that they try to match you with someone that is the same success level you are. So it's pretty easy for a scammer to to find somebody that is lonely, that is a potential mark. 
Okay. And then from there, it's, it's about the scammer coming in and you've got to realize that these guys, some of them are in Egypt, they're in Ghana, they're in Nigeria, even the ones that are in the United States. Is it worth it to them to, to maybe carry on a conversation with that victim for a, a year or longer? Well, if you're in Egypt and you can get that victim, if it takes you a year to get the victim to send you $10,000, that $10,000 is a year's salary in Egypt. And if you've got several victims on the line, you're doing pretty well. That becomes your job, your career all of a sudden. And from the scammer point, it's all about building up trust. Trust cannot be uh, overstated in any type of online relationship, uh, whether it be business relationship or personal. It's about building up trust with the victim. My idea on that is that the scammer starts talking and pretty quick it turns into, you know, I really feel connected to you. What do you think about this? Well, I feel the exact same way. I think that, you know, we we should be together. That type of bullshit like that. Even knowing that it is a scam, but the guy keeps talking to her. Here's one thing that Brett says that I really want to emphasize. You really need to listen to this part. If you have a loved one who's being scammed, please. Media, a lot of people, even friends and family, when someone falls victim to a phishing attack, what's the, what's the phrase? I can't believe you're stupid enough to believe that. Or romance scam. We hear that to this day. I can't believe you're stupid enough to fall for that kind of stuff or someone was stupid enough to do that. Yeah, the media perpetrates that idea and it's got nothing to do. It's got nothing to do with stupidity. It's being psychologically manipulated mm-hmm. is what it is. And stupid has nothing to do with that. So even though you think the person may be a scammer, that person becomes your friend. At the same time, that idea idea that the media and people perpetrate of you're stupid if you fall for this, that causes the victim to disassociate from their real safety net, their support group of their family and friends. Mm-hmm. Okay. So they start hiding this from the people that would that would be their proper support group. So all of a sudden that scammer becomes the only person of consequence in their life, the only person they can really share things with. The scammer knows that. He knows they're disassociating from their family, that they're hiding the stuff at the same time, until finally the scammer put, starts to put on that pressure, whatever the hell that pressure looks like. If it's, uh, you know, I've, I've got a medical condition, business is failing, blackmail potentially, any number of things like that, whatever the, the impetus is to ask for cash, the scammer puts that in. And then what happens to the victim? The victim starts to think, okay, this is my friend. Even if it's a scammer, it's still my friend. There's something about the way Brett described my mom's psyche that just really sinks in with me. I'm so glad I got to talk to him. Make sure you check out his podcast. It's amazing. It's called Anglerfish, and he goes in-depth on his story a little more. If you'd like to contact me, maybe you have a story you'd like to share or need some help, email me at scammerstoriespodcast at gmail.com, or you can send me a message on the Scammer Stories Facebook page. Until next time, Scammer Warriors.